We're in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. You ever have a time when you thought, wish you had a Bible and you didn't? I don't know, I thought I'd put it up here, but did somebody take my Bible? Anybody got one I can use? Just for a second. I don't really need, need it that much. I think I got it memorized. No, I'm just kidding. Preparation. Just get me to the right text. This right there? This isn't one of those weird versions, is it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll get to it. Uh, that's Mark 14. We don't need that. We need Matthew 5. There we go. Matthew 5, 17. There we go. All right. Well, we're in part four of uh, the uh, Sermon on the Mount. If you remember from part one through three, we, we looked at the Beatitudes, and one thing that I talked about, and I think this came from John Stott, that, that we, these aren't like eight different types of Christians. It's, it's the same thing for all Christians as you come through this. You have all these blessings, and you look at blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's really coming in to a relationship with Jesus. You realize that you're poor in spirit, that you're guilty before a holy God. You mourn your sin, and then you become, you, you realize who you really are before God, which is meek, because he's holy and you're not, and then your hunger and thirst for righteousness, which is what you're doing today, right? You come to worship, you come to study, you come to understand. And then the second half is, is essentially Christian character and position before God, as you have merciful, pure in heart, peacemaker, and those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. But so we looked at that. It, it's a good way, if you ever think about ways to tell your faith to someone, those first four are kind of cool to get people in. People who are poor in spirit and realize that they're guilty before holy God will listen more, and God's already kind of working on their heart. So then we, so we spent a couple weeks there, then we went to the salt and light and looked at how, how is a Christian supposed to influence people now that we have Christ and those salt and light metaphors. The, the salt one we looked at more of a, uh, to hinder the process of social decay and then light is to dispel the darkness and went into that and, and there's so many metaphors for that. So then we get to Christ and the law and I'll give you this right back when I actually read it. This is, this is a few verses here. It's only four verses, but any good pastor can preach for a half hour in four verses, right? Uh, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That is a line we'll have to hit pretty good. Won't we? So this is Christ and the law. And you can have this back. So I think I got it memorized now. The, uh, I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. And you look at, we're going to have to hit that really hard because this is hard for us sometimes. I guess I don't need this thing either. This is hard because we, we have a trouble understanding what, where law goes in here as Christians sometimes. And, and some Christian cults have really messed it up royally. Where do we put the law? Where do we put obedience in this whole relationship with God? Jesus does this really well in just four quick verses. Uh, so there's a, there's a progression here, if you notice. 
there's a third person, the law, the prophets, the scripture. You know, it's not necessarily us, it's other things. And then there's second person, you, and then there's first person, I say. You know, so he's kind of moving to that, you know. Then that's in the Sermon on the Mount a lot. You've got, what do the law and the prophets say? What does, what should you do? Or what do other people say? You've heard that it's said, we'll get that later. And then Jesus says, but I say. And that's what's really cool about the Sermon on the Mount. So he's got authority. Because you notice he does that. You see that in Mark 1. And they were all amazed so that they questioned amongst themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. So he's got a, a new teaching with authority. That's it's nice to have a new teaching, but he also has authority, and the authority is the unclean spirits are seeing this. So the scribes of the day, they quoted authority, but they didn't claim it for themselves. But Jesus spoke with his own authority. This is what got him in trouble a lot, because he thought he was something special. Well, so do we. Uh, and it's okay to think yourself something special if you actually are. Uh, if you think you're special and you're not, that's not good. But you, he quotes himself in a lot of this. I say to you, Yahweh says to you is really what this says. So Jesus, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I want to set on that one for a second. We're, we're, you, all you guys know we're not supposed to read one Bible verse or certainly one half. But what does he mean? I, he, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. So here's a question. This shouldn't be too hard for you. Did Jesus come to abolish the law and the prophets? Is that quite clear? So we can't say law and the prophets, get out of here. Right? I mean, that, that's clear, right? I mean, that's not hard. Now we're going to get more about what he did with them. But this is, this is just fundamental. I mean, I, I'm convinced that 95% of all biblical heresy will be gone if you just read it. Uh, you, you've heard people say, well, the Bible says God set, helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. May be true, but it's not in the Bible, you know. And it may not be true, but you know, you might just want to read the text. And the text says, "I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets." Does that mean the law and the prophets are still somewhat active? Then they're important. Yeah. Well, but he did come to fulfill them. Well, that's an interesting word. Now, what we do, and some churches do this, and I don't think it's right, is they say, "Well, you know, they use fulfill as abolish." And we just get right back to the same problem. So fulfill can't mean abolish, right? This is just logic, you know. And it's cool. Some of you are going like this, and some of you are going, why is he asking all these questions? But, it, you know, obviously it's something different, right? Well, what is it? Well, literally it's to draw out, to fill up, to complete. That's what that word means. So he's coming to complete them, but not abolish them. That's the part that we're, and we'll get to this more. Complete them through his person, but also complete our understanding of that. This is kind of an aside, but why don't we add more books to the Bible? Surely God's speaking to people, right, once in a while. Why don't we, why don't we add more? We don't need any more. We think this is sufficient. Show of hands, how many people got the New Testament memorized? Show of hands, how many people know how many books are in the New Testament? <laughs> you know, it's got a few here. Yeah, yeah. How many? Twenty-seven. Good job. But but again, it's it, it, saying that you know that 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 we need more books is kind of saying that Jesus isn't enough. 
Jesus isn't sufficient. Those that he, he said that he would give his spirit so they would remember everything that he taught them in, in John 14 and wrote these books and their associates, I gave you what you need. The problem isn't that we don't have enough. The problem is we don't follow it. Or even worse, we don't know it. I haven't used this word for a while, but it does creep up in sermons once in a while. Everybody knows what it is, right? I know some of you have already said it. To believe that Jesus is the only way and the, the complete revelation that we need and to believe that these books are the best thing that we could ever have and God's revelation to us and everything we need for life and practice was essentially just a summary of our statement of faith and not study them and know them is stupid, right? I mean, we know that word, right? It's just ignorant. It's why, you know? And it's so, it's so interesting then we start adding more. We don't even know what we have yet that well. And you're getting a sermon on four verses. Challenge me, I'll do it on two next time. I think we can do it. But so, fill, the fulfill must mean something different than, than obliterate or abolish, right? We'll look at that in a little bit. So you got to go back to the Old Testament, what's in there. It's, this is just some of the teaching, some of the various kinds of teaching, but this is what Jesus is kind of hit, law and the prophets. So there's the prophets, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all those. And then there's the law, which can mean just the four, first four books, just the Pentateuch. It can mean the writings, too. It probably means the writings, too, here. But what's in there? Where well, there's doctrinal teaching, you know? Torah, just law, just really means revealed instruction. This is kind of a nice uh, trivia question. Who wrote, who wrote the first writings in the Bible? Yeah, we're pretty sure it was God up on Mount Sinai when he wrote the Ten Commandments on the stone. That's kind of the way we believe it. And then Moses gets those and eventually through God and the inspiration writes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So he's starting this stuff out, but it's revealed instruction to us. About what? Well, about him primarily, about us, and about salvation. You can kind of go over that thing we use with the kids, you know. God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection. That's kind of what we need to know, those things. So that's in there. There's a lot of teaching in there. Well, what is teaching for? It's to teach you to do things right. How, how do we know? We're, we're worshiping God now. How do we know how to worship God if we don't know the God? How do we know what worship pleases him? Well, we try to read his word and see who he is and then try to respond back to him. That's what we talked about earlier. Then there's predictive prophecy. When you think of prophets, most people think today that's people just trying to tell the future. No, that's a fortune teller. And if you haven't read both the Old and the New Testament, don't go there. You know what happened to fortune tellers in the Old Testament? <laughs> or whatever. You kick them out. And if they don't leave, then you kill them. Um, we don't do that now, which is better. We just take them to a bed restaurant and they never come back. But predictive, you know, it's not that frequent in the Bible. Um, and a lot of it is about the Messiah, and that's what Jesus is saying. I'm fulfilling all these predictive prophecies about the Messiah. We see that in Matthew 1. We had this during Christmas. All this took place, you know, that Emmanuel and all that stuff and the virgin will conceive and all that to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. At that time, it was Isaiah. And then in Mark 1, the time is fulfilled. There's that word again. Uh, 
and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. The time is now. It's a special time. There were three and a half years in the history of the world that are more special than all the rest. Everything prior to that points to that time, and everything after that points back. That's just what we did here. We point back to the cross. It's actual historical happening that changes everything. So what we see is Jesus fulfills the substance of what the Old Testament had types and shadows. You think about the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the agonizing servant of Psalm 22. Whatever, whoever is going to smack that head of the serpent in Genesis 3. Who's going to fulfill that? Well, Jesus is starting to tell them it's him. So we get that. But you also get these ethical precepts in there. This is in the prophets. This is what actually makes up most of the prophets stuff. And there's one word, and if you've been in a Bible study, you know this, that prophets always say a lot. And it's up there. Repent. You know, as prophets were never people that other people wanted to go out to dinner with. You know, we're going to do that meet and eat again if you want to go, but if a prophet was going, we probably wouldn't go. Because they're annoying. I mean, can't we just lighten up? You know, they just come and tell people they're, you know. And again, what happens, it depends on the heart of the person. You get Jeremiah coming and saying, repent, you're going to get destroyed. And the people who followed Jeremiah had a heart poor in spirit, maybe we might say, mourning their sins, and they responded. That was the, the, the minority. The people who didn't weren't poor in spirit, they thought they were special because they were around and God chose them in some ways. They didn't. And how do we heed this? You, you know, Jeremiah says, Oh Lord, do not your eyes look for truth. You have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refused to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. Their heart hasn't changed yet. They weren't poor in spirit. Ezekiel, therefore, say to the house of Israel, Ezekiel's written, he's in exile. It's already happened. Thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. So repent, repent, repent. And if you notice back there in, in Mark 1, how did Jesus start out his ministry? Repent. It just means changing your mind away from what is wrong and toward what is right. In this case, Jesus. So how did Jesus fulfill this moral law? He's fulfilling it, right? I think he does it in three ways. He's, first of all, he keeps everything, right? Hebrews 4, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. You can read Matthew 4, Luke 4 about the temptation. Or just your own temptations. You know, we never got as far as Jesus. Jesus goes all the way past where the devil just kind of, I don't know if he has a tail, but if he does, he tucks his tail and leaves. And most of the time we give in before the tail goes through the legs, right? He's done that. He, he, and that's, when you think about that, when you're praying, maybe something like, do not me, do let, let me be led into temptation. Does that sound familiar? We'll get that later. It's in chapter 6. You're praying to the one who knows exactly what it means to be in temptation at a level that we really never got. The second, he reveals the full depth of their meaning. He rejects the scribe's superficial meaning, and he supplies the true interpretation. That's, you have heard that it said, I say to you, which is kind of a nice way of saying these guys got it wrong. 
and we're going to see how he does that as we go through this. And the third is by showing where true acceptance by God comes from. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is really about, isn't it? Isn't that what everybody wants to know, I think, if you're seeking? How do I get in right relationship with God? Almost, well, not almost, every other religion, with the exception of true Judaism and Christianity, will tell you you have to be better, do better things, more better things than you do bad things. You work your way there somehow. But Jesus gives us something different. Romans 10, for the Christ has already accomplished the purpose of which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. So it's faith, right? It's faith, it's belief. Well, this is different. Jesus is coming and saying, you believe in me and you'll have eternal life. Well, what about the law then? He must abolish that, right? We know that's not true. He fulfilled it. It doesn't mean we abolish God's moral law and we are now free to disobey it. That is not, it's just where do we put the law? What is the law for? How is it supposed to be used? John the Baptist in Matthew 3, prove by the way you live that you have repented of turned to God. Ever thought about that? Do you live your life like you've been forgiven? Do you live your life like God is with you? You know, that's, that's what we're supposed to do. Jesus is a little bit upset at this point, I think, with the disciples. So why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? Or even more pointed, if you love me, keep my, keep my commandments. Obey what I teach. Did you know that's the core of the love of God is obeying what he teaches? It's really kind of easy, isn't it? I mean, to think. I'm not saying it's easy to do. So this does not mean that acceptance from God does not come from obedience to the law, but through faith. And it does mean that. It means that faith is where we get it, but the obedience doesn't go away. It's just where do we put the obedience? So when you think, what's Jesus? He's not against the law. He's against the wrong use of it. If you think I need to follow what God taught to get in right relationship with God, you've missed the gospel. In fact, we went as far as to name our church after this concept. Grace. Grace, by definition, is not earned. So if you're saved by grace, you're not saved by earning it. You're saved by unmerited favor by someone who has the power to give it to you. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So that's Christ and the law. Christ comes to tell us that these precepts, you know, you probably know the Ten Commandments. Are they still operative today, or do, what, were those abolished? What about eating lobster? I've got a couple of red lobster gift certificates in my desk. We'll talk about that in a minute, because we're going to get to the Christian and the law now. Um, so in verses 19 and 20, he says, we must conform to the law even better than the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, to us, it's like we always think, when you think Pharisee, we tend to think hypocrite, belligerent, you know, annoying. The Pharisees were the separatists of the day. They're the ones that separated themselves to follow all this moral holy stuff. They were the ones that really kept it. They would tithe more than they had to. They would actually try to help people more than they had to. They're actually kind of nice guys, if you get to know them. But there's a problem here. Well, w what is it? Well, how can I be 
they had to think that. This had to just smack these people. I have to be more holy than the Pharisees? That's kind of, you're going over the top here, Jesus. How do, how do I do that? I'm not in a position to do that. They had 248 commandments, 365 pro prohibitions that they kept. So doesn't this teach a doctrine of salvation by works against the rest of the New Testament? No. It's where, what he's talking about is, you know, he goes back, he's talking about what is the law for? How do, it's again, where is my connection with God? You think about it logically. If you do something today that really honors God, is he going to be impressed? Is he going to go, you know, I never saw that before. He's probably not going to be impressed. Now, he may be happy that you did that, but he's not going to be impressed. You're not going to impress him. There's no way you can do things that make him impressed that, that you know, oh, well, I'm going to save that guy because, boy, he did that. It doesn't even make any sense, right? Because he's holy. We never meet, meet his standard. You know, really all the, 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 the doctrine of salvation and grace and all, all comes down to God's holiness. If we understand who God is, we, you know, we just praise the name of the worship God who is holy. The fact that you even get to come in here and worship God who is holy and not get blown up is grace. Look in the Old Testament, when Moses went on the mountain, he couldn't even look at him, and this is Moses. So how do we get saved? How do we get this special favor? It's when you believe, you know, Ephesians 2. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift of God. Salvation is not a reward for good things we have done, so none of us can boast. If that's a good verse to memorize. If you know that when the rest of the gospel kind of flows off of it. This is grace. You were saved by grace. Well, how do I get it? Belief, faith, that activates it. You never earn it. You never, ever earn it. So a Christian's righteousness far exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees in kind rather than degree. He's saying these scribes and Pharisees, some of them don't really know Yahweh. They're just trying to follow a bunch of rules. They don't want a connection with him. They don't want to, he's a person. And Jesus comes as a person, the second person, as God to show us what God is like. And as we talked with the kids, you know, again, it's the heart he cares about for Samuel and David. But to the Pharisees, Jesus said, who dearly loved their money. So now he's seen inside the heart. He heard all this and scoffed at him. They said to him, you like to appear righteous in public, but God knows your hearts. What this world honors is detestable in the sight of God. It's again, who are we trying to please? When you think about your life, when you make a decision to do something, who are you trying to please? Who is your audience? You remember Pilate. He's really torn on whether he should sentence Jesus to death. Do you remember that? Tune in in April. You might get to see that on stage. Not tune in. Go to the FAC. But trying to please the crowd, he had Jesus crucified. Who was his audience? I mean, this man had the audience of the Son of God, and he ended up going with the crowd. Who was our audience? Because you see, the covenant changes. It's pointing toward, it was always through grace. You know, Abraham believed God was credited to him for righteousness. But Jeremiah and Ezekiel, these post-Esalic prophets, Jeremiah says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. 
and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And you get this every time you're trying to make a decision and a, a scripture comes to mind. I think that's kind of the spirit guiding us all. And Ezekiel even more, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So why is the spirit there? To walk in my statutes. To be careful to obey my rules. We're still obeying them, not to be saved, but because we are. Just don't put obedience on the top line. You don't get saved by being obedient. You be obedient because you're saved. Now you're in the family and you love God. So external conformity law is not enough. Jesus asks us to go deeper. That's what this whole Sermon on the Mount's about. If anybody says they follow the Sermon on the Mount completely, they're lying and they probably haven't read it. That's why our righteousness must exceed that of the scratch. It's about a heart issue. You ever heard this question? How saved are you? Are you like 50% saved? 98% saved? Are you more saved than I am? It's not a matter of how saved you are. You're either saved or you're not, right? Because if you're saved, if you have salvation, have eternal life through Jesus, you're not, Jesus looks at you, the Father looks at you and says you're completely clean. How could you be more than completely clean? That's what we have to, that's what we get. It's not some get some of the sins forgiven. No, all of them are washed away. But as he said to Nicodemus, you aren't even going to see the kingdom of God unless you're born from above. It's that regenerating spirit for those who are poor in spirit, mourn their sin, and realize their meekness as he's already taught. So we have to exceed this how? By following Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's moving in. This is early in his ministry. You think this gets, does it get your attention? <laughs> Wait till we get to some, you think this is easy? It's going to be really hard, uh, really hard to do, especially on your own, especially on your own. You're never, this is always plural. It's the church thing we're supposed to be doing. So Jesus upholds the law. He did not set himself against Moses. He never did. Remember who was up on the Transfiguration Mount with him? Elijah representing the prophets and Moses representing the law. He doesn't set the New Testament against the Old Testament or gospel against law. They're just... The gospel is to save you. The law is how you act once you're saved. They're not against each other. He sets his own true interpretation of the law versus the scribes' misinterpretations. And the remainder of chapter 5 is going to give us some examples of that. So Jesus, as John Calvin said, was not a new legislature, but a faithful expounder of a law that had already been given. The Pharisees had obscured the law. Jesus restored it to its integrity. You don't use it to get God to like you better. You do it to honor God and love him. If you love me, keep my commandments. So he disagreed with the Pharisees' interpretation of the law. He never disagreed with their acceptance of its authority. So I know you're sitting here. You've been waiting for a long time because maybe you're all going to eat fish, shellfish soon. What about those types of commandments in there? You've heard people say that. You know, with sexuality issues. Well, if you don't think that this sexuality type of can happen, then you, you also can't eat shellfish, as if they're the same thing. Well, what do we do? Well, Jesus said that all foods are clean. Peter had that sheet vision. Um, we're not under the old covenant. We're under what covenant? The new covenant. Think about it. Anybody here live in Nebraska? 
used to. Well, we all have our cross to bear, right? <laughs> Ooh, that was a slam. I got the mic. Wait till he gets the mic. I'm in trouble. <laughs> but they have laws in Nebraska, right? I actually used to live in Nebraska. I lived in actually, I lived in Council Bluffs and worked in, in Omaha. And I, I, I ended up moving to Omaha because I didn't, didn't want to do double taxes, I think was the only reason. Um, but they have laws in there. But do, I, do you, anybody here who doesn't live in Nebraska have to file a Nebraska state tax return? Well, why? You're not under that jurisdiction, are you? Now, is there some similarities between Iowa's tax? Yeah, I mean, there's things we do. Think of that like the Old Testament. You know, if the, the Old Testament, the old law is over there, we're in the new law. We're under this jurisdiction. Now, there's some similarities, right? But there's some differences, too. Those people in Nebraska can't eat shellfish. We can. Metaphor. We're not under that jurisdiction. So how do I figure out what's in and what's out? I don't know. Read the text. It's not really that hard. You can eat shellfish if you want. Now, if somebody is early in the church, we see this in Romans 15 and 1 Corinthians 8, who was Jewish was really having trouble with that. Then when you go to their house, you divide them over, don't have, you know, crab. Why? Because you want to think about their conscience. So there's some stuff in there about food sacrifice to idols and eating special things and special days. It's not that we have to do it, but sometimes you want to help people. If you go into an Orthodox Jew's house, touch the little thing, take your shoes off. It's not that big a deal. Their conscience may hurt if we don't do that. So you just look. All foods are clean. You can actually sew two types of cloth together now. It was all metaphors for idolatry is what most of this stuff was. And yes, if you want to go to have a nice pork sandwich, go for it. Right? They have pork in Nebraska too, don't they? Yeah, I thought they did. Metaphor's over. But think about that. How do we know? And I guess just discuss it. Read about it. Think about it. What things... But the moral law continues, right? The ceremonial law kind of changes. And these cultural laws, we really don't have to follow because we're not under that jurisdiction. Now, don't go around to Jews and say, nana, nana, boo, boo, I can eat pork and you can't. But we're not under that jurisdiction. Jesus is who we follow. And he's the one that told, don't worry about that, to Peter. Go ahead and eat these. They're not unclean anymore because I've made them clean. So a person's acceptance from God comes through belief in and commitment to Jesus Christ. If you remember that, the rest of it kind of falls into place. A Christian's ability to continue follow Jesus and follow his deeper morality comes only from the power of his spirit in their heart. And I might add other people pointing that out because they love us. So it's not about following the rules when it comes to salvation. It never really was, even in the Old Testament. It's about following a person. The person of Yahweh in the Old Testament who reveals himself through law and writings and prophets and the person of Jesus who takes on flesh as the second person of the Trinity and gives us grace. Grace that was already in the Old Testament, but Jesus is grace personified. If you want to know what God's like, let Jesus take you by the hand and show you. And then, you can live a life of obedience because you have gratitude. Not to be in relationship with him, but because you are. Let us pray. Father, it's such wonderful words and helps us understand where the law stands, that people were using it wrong. They were trying to use it to make you accept them where it was never supposed to do that. We know 
Paul tells us that the law is a mirror. It shows us your character and how far we fall short. So as we continue in our day, in our week, in our year, help us remember that following you is all about focusing on your son, trying to conform to his character, act like he did, and follow the rules he set down because we love him.